It's September 1720, off the Caribbean island of St. Christopher's. The Bristol merchant ship, Mary and Martha, bobs peacefully in the calm coastal waters. Bridstock Weaver, the chief mate, stands next to his captain, Thomas Wilcox, as they hail the two vessels anchored ahead of them. A ship and a sloop, both flying English colours. Ahoy! comes the reply. As luck would have it, they are also from Bristol. Captain Wilcox communicates their wish to come aboard to share news and trade supplies. As first officer, the 34-year-old Weaver leads the greeting party. Accompanied by the Mary's bosun, they take a launch and half a dozen sailors and row towards the larger of the two vessels, the Royal Fortune. As they near the English ship, they see the crew line up on deck cheerfully waving at them to approach. Bridstock Weaver, an old hand with years of experience, suddenly feels his stomach turn. Something doesn't feel right. He whispers to the bosun to slowly come about and be ready to row for their lives. The Mary's sailors are confused, and for a moment, some stop rowing, causing a clash of oars. In their panic, they've shown their hand. Before they know it, a piercing whistle aboard the English ship signals a flurry of activity. Gun ports flip open. The sailors on deck suddenly reveal muskets and cutlasses, and the king's colors are hauled down, and black flags are run up. Weaver and the sailors scramble with their oars to get away, but they are brought to a halt by a warning shot piercing the water next to them. Looking up, they see an officer aboard the pirate ship, gesturing with his still smoking pistol. They are to come aboard. Weaver has little choice but to comply. He's helped onto the deck by the pirate officer, taking his outstretched hand. The pirate introduces himself with a smile and a flourish of his pistol as Thomas Anstice, quartermaster. Within an hour, the Mary and Martha is in the pirate's control. She soon stripped the valuables and her crew are rounded up on deck. Most of the captive crew are bundled into boats and set adrift whilst their ship is set on fire. But not everyone is allowed to go free. Weaver, along with the bosun, is held hostage. As they sail away aboard the pirate ship, the two men watch as their own vessel is consumed by fire and smoke. Lost forever, along with the lives they had known. They have been selected by the pirate lords the governing council of the pirate fleet, one of whom is Thomas Anstice. He explains that skilled sailors like them are hard to come by, and their talents are needed by the company. Next, they are hauled in front of the pirate commodore. 
Bartholomew Roberts. Roberts is a dark and brooding figure with a foul temper. He snarls and makes their situation clear. They have two options. Join the crew or die. To underline the point, both men are beaten and whipped before two pistols are leveled at their chests and a parchment is rolled out before them. The pirates' articles, their unholy laws, and beneath a mass of signatures or rather marks and scratches of ink indicating every crewman's agreement, their bond. Weaver, despite all his years at sea, is suddenly overwhelmed. He weeps for his family and the life he has surely lost. The pirates round on him, laughing, mocking him. Another lashes at him again with a piece of rope, growling, Damn ye, do ye cry here? He hurls a pewter mug of beer at him. Take the cane and drink, ye dog. Weaver thinks of the shame. He thinks of his sweet sisters, and then considers the fate that awaits him should he refuse. He takes up the quill in his shaking hand and signs his name. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. We think of pirates as headstrong individualists, authors of their own destiny. And some were. In particular, the famous swashbuckling captains of legend. But the truth is more complex. A great many Golden Age pirates were just men caught up in things outside of their control. As the story of Bridstock Weaver illustrates. Despite the mass of conflicting evidence and contradictory testimony, this is the best guess of what really happened to a young man from the West Country between 1721 and 1725. A shocking, twisting tale of duty, betrayal, and above all else, the will to survive. 
Bridstock Weaver was born in the southwest of England in 1686, in the rural market town of Hereford. Once known for its thriving trade in fine wool, by the mid-17th century, the economy is in ruins and its inhabitants are desperately poor. Not much is known about the young Bridstock, but the name Weaver suggests he's a descendant of the once prosperous class of cloth workers. Born to Elizabeth and Edmund Weaver, their large family live in relative comfort in their country estate in Herefordshire, avoiding the worst of the poverty that blights the region. But the family's position is still precarious. Bridstock is the second youngest of eleven children. Growing up, it's made clear he'll have to provide for himself. According to some accounts, there is also disagreement within the family, a quarrel, and as a result, sometime in the early 1700s, still a young man, Bridstock Weaver is sent to sea, and it seems he embarks on a life that suits him. Dr. Manishag Powell is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. He must have been a good navigator and able to manage the sailing of a ship, which is a very complicated operation. To have been a navigator, he would have had to be, in some respects, quite educated. He would have had to study for years. He would have had probably quite decent mathematical abilities because, you know, navigation at this point in time, a lot of it is celestial and working from observations and doing trigonometry. So in some respects, would have been studious, hardworking, probably quite intelligent and would have had to be able to manage complicated organizational issues, you know, understanding the wind, understanding men's personalities, how to keep things moving. So probably, you know, somebody that we consider like a very capable professional, a journeyman at his trade. In 1720, at the age of 34, Weaver is a respected seaman and a senior officer aboard the merchant ship Mary and Martha about to make their return voyage from St. Christopher's to Britain. He writes regularly to his mother and siblings in Herefordshire. His elderly father Edmund is gravely ill and facing death. Bridstock is unmarried and childless, but he's a dutiful son and brother. So one could only imagine his distress when his ship is boarded by pirates and he's forced at gunpoint to join their gang. While it's true that practically everybody who was tried for piracy claimed to have been forced, it was the case for a fair number of people that they really had been forced, and, and some later adapted to the life, but it was certainly a traumatic event for a lot of the men. So to some degree, the pirates themselves must have been quite hardened to seeing these men weeping and struggling and refusing because this had become sort of a normal practice. So this is probably what's happening with Weaver is they want him, they know he doesn't want to be there, but they've made up their minds and they believe based on what they've been living that they can overcome his resistance. And so they're sort of ignoring his deep unwillingness to be there. For him, of course, this has to have been totally devastating. So of course he doesn't want to sign. On the other hand, life is sweet and there's multiple guns pointed at his head. So he's going to sign. For the next seven months, Bart Roberts' pirate fleet goes from strength to strength. They capture larger vessels and expand the fleet. Soon it consists of several ships. The New Providence is accompanied by the Royal Fortune and a newly captured brigantine, the Good Fortune. Weaver serves aboard the Good Fortune as pilot and navigator, 
under the command of Thomas Anstis, who is master of the vessel. Together, the pirates burn and pillage their way across the Atlantic to West Africa and back to the Americas. But as the pirate fleet expands, so does the size of the crew. There are over 200 men, many of them forced aboard like Bridstock. And all's not well within Roberts' growing ranks. By the spring of 1721, cracks are showing. Having already suffered one mutiny at the hands of Walter Kennedy, Roberts becomes more and more despotic. A tyrannical overlord, paranoid of deserters and mutineers. Tensions finally come to a head in April of the same year. Roberts murders one of his own crew in a disagreement. The crewman in question was drunk and foolish. But he happens to be a good friend of another pirate, a large, sober man called Thomas Jones. Jones is outraged and challenges Roberts in front of the crew. Roberts, not a man to be questioned, draws his cutlass and lunges for him. Although badly wounded, Jones manages to throw Roberts over a gunwale and beats him handsomely before eventually being hauled away. The crew is split, but eventually a vote is held, and the company decides that Thomas Jones should be disciplined by way of a public lashing by the whole crew. No doubt Bridstock Weaver watches on. Having already been in the pirate's company for over six months, by now he's become accustomed to the casual violence, the rough justice, and radical democracy exhibited by them. But the incident is another blow to morale. 18th century historian Charles Johnson, who claims to have got the story from Thomas Jones personally, recounts that the altercation had liked to have thrown their government, such as it was, off the hinges. A schism is forming, and the company will inevitably separate. On the 18th of April, 1721, Bridstock Weaver aboard the brigantine Good Fortune watches Jones and a band of pirates row over from Roberts' flagship. He welcomes them aboard. Jones and the others ask to meet with Captain Anstis. Privately. Eventually, the group emerges, and the crew holds a vote to decide their future. They vote to split with Roberts and go their own way. A little after midnight, the good fortune dims its lights and sails off into the darkness, bidding Roberts and his tyranny a soft farewell, as the pirates say. At least, that's the version we get from pirate historian Charles Johnson. Johnson's version of Anstis is one of the more heavily revised versions between the first and subsequent editions. So he's clearly struggling with everything we're struggling with, trying to get the sources straight, knowing that there are discrepancies. And one of his main sources is clearly Thomas Jones. And actually, it's in the sort of second and subsequent editions that more Jones is incorporated into uh, what he's writing. So we're pretty certain that Johnson's, A, making some stuff up, but B, where he's not, is relying on Jones. And the problem is, how much do we trust Jones? I don't know that we trust him all that far. So. 
The story of how all of these pirate chiefs break away from Robert's company as sort of instigated by this incident with Jones is fantastic. I mean, it's like right out of a movie. And it's probably coming from Jones, and so that's a little bit of a problem. So what's really interesting about this story is that whether or not it happened exactly the way Jones was like us to think it happened, probably not. It does show that disagreements were a problem for pirates, that they had ways of settling them, that they expected certain protocols to be followed, but also that even when you've got what you might think to be like sort of a simmering blood feud going on, they had a peaceful way to resolve that too, which is that the angry people just go away and do their own thing. Shortly after separating, under Anstis's command, the brigantine Good Fortune sets about pillaging and pirating with a vengeance. Anstis is, by all accounts, a more reasonable commander than Roberts. He takes decisions collectively, and the Pirate Council meets and votes on any disagreements. They soon lay down their own set of pirate articles that will dictate the laws that govern them. Like most pirate codes, they cover compensation for injuries, ban gambling, punish thievery, and outline the chain of command. But a few articles seem to be specifically informed by their own recent experiences with Roberts. More egalitarian than most, the booty is to be split evenly, regardless of rank. The company can be dissolved with a unanimous vote, and any pirate can leave the company with their crewmate's blessing. Although any deserters would be punished by a collective ruling, all are able to seek a pardon and retire from piracy should the opportunity arise. From the outset, it seems Anstis's pirate company has got one eye on the future, knowing the pirate life won't last forever. But according to Johnson, what the articles say on paper and what is actually practiced may not be one and the same. So Johnson makes a remark that he doesn't understand why pirates whose entire careers are premised on breaking rules think that having rules is going to work. And definitely we get the sense that some rules are more honored in the breach than otherwise. Like there's a, almost every ship has a prohibition on gambling. This is because pirates are terrible gamblers and gamble constantly. Also, men are not allowed to be drunk on board deck. Well, we know that happens a lot too. So a lot of these rules are not adhered to very closely. Their articles are soon put to the test. Johnson alleges that one of Anstis's first attacks is on an Irish ship called the Irwin. Sailing off Martinique in June 1721, the pirates viciously abuse the captain and crew, as well as the passengers. It seems the pirates are quick to violate one rule in particular. Article 9 states, if any person or persons shall go on board of a prize and meet with any gentlewoman or lady of honor, and should force them against their will to lie with them, shall suffer death. According to Johnson, a number of the pirates attack and sexually assault a female passenger, forcing the poor creature successively before throwing her overboard. Incidentally, they also injure an army colonel who attempts to stop them, and who would later report the crime. What's interesting about Johnson's very terrible intro to the career of Anstis is that he describes a gang rape and murder of a woman that a colonel tried to prevent and was not able to prevent. 
It's one of the few cases in Johnson's very compendious history of pirates where he notes a sexual assault against a white woman and also kind of pauses to let you think about how terrible that is. So in fact, what these rules do is not insist that pirates respect women, but suggest that pirates are going to sexually assault women and try to localize that violence against women who are going to be unlikely to be able to bring resources to bear in revenge. So it's basically like, don't go causing trouble by assaulting somebody, you know, high enough in the social hierarchy that she's going to be able to get a male relative to come after us, that this is going to be seen as, you know, shocking to the public if the newspapers get hold of us and we're going to have hunters on our heels. What we do know, in fact, is that women of color were routinely subject to assault by pirates. That's all over every account that Black and Indigenous women were very frequently subject to sexual assault by pirates who just happened to be passing through. This incident was recorded in one newspaper, it was in Miss Weekly, so there's some basis for thinking it's true, but we don't really know anything beyond what Johnson has here. The name of this woman, where she was from, et cetera, et cetera. But what's important about it, basically, is that an upper-class man witnessed it and then complained about it, because otherwise, this kind of thing, it just doesn't register to either the pirates or the historians, apparently, that some women, most women, are seen as, in fact, rapeable. I hate to say it, but that's the coding there. One can only imagine the horror experienced by the female victims of pirates. If apparently reluctant crewmen like Bridstock Weaver were under any illusions before, he surely knows this new crew aren't any better than the last and exactly what it is he's caught up in. And it's not long before they run across their next victims. It's mid-afternoon, on the 22nd of June, 1721. A Bristol merchant ship called the Hamilton cuts through the sparkling azure waters off the coast of Jamaica. Captain Joseph Smith stands at the stern, eyeglass in hand. He stares back at the foreboding shape looming in the distance. The unknown vessel has been tracking them since dawn. He utters a silent curse. Some hours later, their pursuers have closed the gap. He watches with grim inevitability as the blank flag is hoisted aloft. Pirates. The game's up. He gives the order to strike the sails and come about. Surrender is the only option. A boat full of pirates rows over and clambers aboard. They soon take control of the vessel and steer it to a nearby island cove to plunder the Hamilton more thoroughly. Despite not carrying anything of significant value, the ordeal goes on for weeks. Under Thomas Anstis's supervision, the pirates strip the Hamilton from top to bottom. They take stores of salt beef and several barrels of expensive cider, along with sails, rigging, tools, even items of clothing. Like a pack of ravenous hounds, they snap and snarl and devour everything in sight. But one pirate stands alone. Despite clearly being an officer, he remains civil and offers sympathetic words and solace. He also makes a show of refusing to take a share in the plunder, 
and attempts to rein in the worst excesses of his crewmates. This is Bridstock Weaver, still alive, but still reluctant, after nearly a year amongst the pirates. The pirates take on a number of the Hamilton's crew to supplement their force, including foremastman Henry Treehill, who, though terrified of his captors, also finds comfort in Weaver's company. Other witnesses will also later comment on Weaver's refusal to partake in the plundering, much to his crewmates' annoyance. Apparently, the pirates describe Weaver as a much disaffected person. He's regarded with suspicion. Eventually, Anstis releases the ransacked Hamilton back to her traumatized captain, Joseph Smith, only to come across it several weeks later in even worse condition than ever. After a month or so raiding Spanish shipping in the Bay of Honduras, the pirates beat off a Spanish guardacosta conveying a prize ship. When they board the prize vessel, they discover it is the same vessel they themselves plundered weeks previously, the Hamilton. They also discover that Captain Joseph Smith was cast adrift in a small boat some days beforehand. A short debate is had amongst the pirates on whether to go in search of the beleaguered Bristol merchant, but they think better of it. Instead, they vote to burn the Hamilton and move on, leaving the unfortunate Joseph Smith to his fate. Little could they know, Captain Smith will, against all odds, make it back to Britain, and he will one day have his revenge on them. Despite being with the pirates for the best part of a year, Weaver has so far remained stalwart in his refusal to partake in the plunder. He may have signed the pirate articles, but he knows as soon as he takes a life or takes a share of the loot, his soul is damned and his fate will be sealed. No doubt his resistance makes life hard for him aboard the ship, although it may have also won a few admirers. So what I think is likely in the case of someone like Bridstock Weaver, who had a long career, who clearly was skilled and had a lot of experience, is there probably would have been pirates that kind of took his side. There probably would have been men on the crew who, you know, respected what he could do and tried to make his life a little less miserable. But he also probably would have been subject to a lot of fear and harassment. So it's quite possible that both things are going on. That on the one hand, he has to be careful under deck because he's getting kicked coming up the stairs and coming down. And maybe people are messing with him, messing with his food. He could be subject to beatings. But he probably also had supporters. He probably also would have found some kindness in places. Because otherwise, like, how could he have survived at it this long? I'm sure those first few months were extremely terrible, but he has to have also somehow been able to network and to make some connections because otherwise I don't think we can explain the rest of his career. Whether in spite of his defiance or perhaps because of it, Bridstock Weaver slowly gains the respect of his fellows. In the coming months, he becomes the first mate and eventually steering master of the good fortune effectively becoming Thomas Anstis's head of ship operations. Through late summer and into autumn 1721, they pillage English, French and Spanish shipping alike, all across the Caribbean. In November, sailing off Bermuda, they seize a large Dutch merchant ship en route from West Africa to Carolina, called the Morning Star. 
Thomas Anstis gives the order for them to sail to a local safe haven to refit the captured vessel. This is where things will change for the reluctant pirate, Bridstock Weaver. Once anchored, they arm the prize ship with 32 pieces of cannon and over a hundred men. Anstis takes the Morning Star for himself as his new flagship. But now they must decide who will take command of the brigantine Good Fortune. The expansion and restructuring of any pirate company is a precarious moment, as Anstis knows only too well, having himself led a breakaway from Bart Roberts. Tensions amongst the crew are high. With so many forced men aboard, there's an ever-increasing chance of rebellion. And overseeing them is a hardened core of experienced pirates, who are themselves growing frustrated at the lack of valuable prizes under Anstis' leadership. The man leading the agitators is, for many, an obvious choice for command. A veteran sailor and the senior gunner, John Fenn. So very frequently what happens is the pirate apparently would sort of appoint his most trusted member, and often that's the quartermaster, right, who would be kind of the second and sometimes first most powerful co-officer aboard the ship. John Fenn is another member of this crew. He's the gunner. So again, as with Weaver, this is somebody who's got a highly important skill that it takes years to master, someone who's absolutely indispensable during battle. So this is an important officer, somebody with skills, somebody who probably was afforded a great deal of respect among the crew, one of the heavy hitters politically. And he's apparently not considered at this point for captain. So why wasn't Fenn in the running, given that everything we know about Fenn is that he was a perfectly willing pirate? Was he too valuable as a gunner? Was he somebody that Ansys didn't trust? Was he not ready for the step yet? Was he playing a longer game? We don't know. The senior pirates put forward their preferred candidates, giving a short speech recommending their selection to the company. Fenn is likely one of the clear favorites. But what happens next shocks many. Thomas Anstis watches on with interest as the Morning Star's quartermaster steps up to name the final candidate. There's a mix of gasps and cheers when the name is read aloud. Bridstock Weaver is so shocked, he hardly reacts to hearing his own name being read out. Surely there's some mistake. A cruel joke? Him, of all people, Captain. Reluctant pirate he may be, but he's also a peerless sailor and consummate professional, and possibly the only decent navigator in the crew. With loyalties split across the company, in a way he might be seen as an instant fix, a neutral party. In any case, in spite of his protests, Bridstock Weaver is voted in as captain of the Good Fortune, with Thomas Anstis serving as Commodore. It could well have been whoever nominated Weaver saying, he's the only navigator we've got. If you don't want to die, <laughs> vote for Weaver, which I think was quite possibly a lot of the election platform there. But, you know, what we do know is that this was a not very united crew, but one that was trying to get along and that somehow they did come to an agreement that this forced man who by all accounts was not very happy being a pirate, was the best captain that they could have. And so he's put aboard this ship and it raises a lot of questions. 
One witness, Henry Treehill, would later report, though he seemed unwilling to accept of the post, he could not well refuse it because he was voted to it by the crew. It's as if Anstis had been grooming Weaver for this very moment. Like it or not, Bridstock Weaver is now a commander of a pirate ship. It's impossible to know what Weaver feels at this moment, but one thing is clear. He can no longer simply remain in the background, an innocent bystander to the crimes of this pirate company. For over a year, he's been successful in walking a careful line, distancing himself from the worst offenses, whilst avoiding making too many enemies amongst the crew. Perhaps he has done too good a job. He has also lost any chance to escape unnoticed. Now, as captain, his every move will be scrutinized. Every decision will be questioned. And should he fail his crew? Well, he knows what they're capable of. Once again, he's faced with a life or death decision. All he can do is try and navigate the course laid out for him. Next time on Real Pirates. The reluctant pirate Bridstock Weaver must now navigate a new course as captain of the Good Fortune and tasked with managing a growing crew whose desires are split between raiding, rebelling, and retiring. He's going to need all the good fortune he can find. Faced with difficult decisions, can he continue to walk the line between survival and damnation? Find out next time on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Written and produced by McAllister Beckson. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.